Lord, we thank you that life, as we were reminded this morning, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's all about you. We want to continue our focus on you this morning, Father. So I ask that you would specifically empower me to preach the word of God. And may it be not my words, but your words. Holy Spirit, would you please move doing your work of convicting according to sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is your time. And we ask and thank you for your presence here with us and move freely through this place, Holy Spirit. Be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does anybody know the history of that song, The Heart of Worship, by chance? Anybody? I don't know the name of the church or the name of the pastor that I think it was Matt Redman wrote that. But worship, you can imagine with such a gifted worship leader and a songwriter, worship had become an idol in that church. And so the pastor came to, to, to Matt Redman and said that the worship is an idol in this church. We're not going to be doing any worship for a while. And that was the reason for this, the song. They suspended worship until they got their priorities right, and then they brought it back. That's why, think about that next time you, you hear those words and sing that, that song. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's the heart of worship. They, he wants more than a song, he wants you. So just a little worship history lesson there this morning. Get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to dive into and look at this verse this morning, Matthew seven fifteen. And I must admit that um, we will talk about false prophets this morning. I have never studied or looked at false prophets. Um, and there is an awful, awful lot that God says about false prophets and how prevalent they have been and continue to be in our society. In Matthew 7:15, as you can see up on the screen, it says beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But I want to begin by talking about of all things an article entitled A Brief History of the Recliner Chair. The official chair of Dads Everywhere, from January 5th, 2017. Uh, the author, Matt Christensen, writes this. Um, how many have recliners at home, just out of curiosity? Okay, very good. Um, he writes, you have Captain Kirk's Enterprise seat and its authoritarian swivel. Then there's Pee Wee Herman's cherry, which well talks. And who can forget the Iron Throne? I don't know how they call it a recliner, but... Constructed from the swords of surrendered enemies. There's no shortage of iconic recliner chairs. He goes on to say, and I thought this was fascinating, that recliners have a long history. The history indicates that chase uh, lounges and daybeds, they were the early forerunners to common recliner chairs, have been around, having been around since ancient Egypt, and in fact, many depictions of Greek gods and goddesses 
show them sprawled out on noticeably decadent daybeds that, guess what they call those decadent daybeds? Kleins. K-L-I-N-E-S, Kleins. In 1790, um, and this is the, the author talks about the tooth about recliners, we can thank dentists for the popularity of recliners. Because you had the first dentist chair, and what was, of course, what? Adjustable, featured a movable headrest, which was probably a good thing, the author writes, considering Novocaine didn't come about until 1905. In the late 1800s, thanks to developing woodworking techniques, seats that swiveled, slid, raised, and lowered became more common. Then a seismic shift that rocked the reclining world happened in the late 1920s. American cousins Edward Nabush, Knabush or Nabush, and Edwin Shoemaker. Who knows who these two men are? Boys, you deaf men, you definitely would, would almost worship at the throne of these two men. Okay? They filed a patent application that trademarked the design of a simple reclining wooden bench that later became the traditional recliner. The license, this license to manufacture chairs, paved the way for the formation of a little company called Lazy Boy. Lazy Boy. God bless Edward Nabush and Edwin Shoemaker, right? Now, today, just speaking about just all recliner chairs, they come in a variety of models. There's an $11,000 CPU-controlled medical-grade massage chair. It's a recliner. All the way down to the, the recliner that just stows a six-pack of, 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 of alcohol or of some sort of beverage in the uh, armrest. Now, see, it's a throne from which you can watch TV and cuddle with your kids. Dad, you ever had your kids with you on your recliner, on your throne? But even more importantly, it's also the staging area for a very important parenting lesson. Children, you need to understand this, and wives do too. Don't wake dad from his nap on his recliner. Right? Well, that got me thinking, okay, well, what are the iconic recliners that, that maybe I've seen on television growing up over all these 52 years of my existence? And so I want to see, can you identify these recliners? The first one should be pretty easy, although we are an older congregation, so you should get this one. Tell me who, tell me about this recliner. Whose is that? That's Archie Bunker. Played by the actor who? Carol Connor, right? Carol Connor, right? That ran from night that show Archie, what was it? The Bunkers, that it was? All in the family, all in the family, excuse me, all in the family. 1971 and 1979, okay? There's his chair. Of course, here is Archie sitting in his chair. Now, I want to sit, tell you about this. His chair, by the way, this chair right here, it is on display at the American History Museum's American Stories. That's why you can see it, and it's surrounded by glass. Okay. How about this chair? Martin Crane's chair in Fraser. Okay. 
Here's a picture of him in his chair. Okay. You guys recognize that? Who knew that one, by the way, other than my family? Okay. All right. I forget the name of the, author, the actor. It's John something. He passed away a few years ago. This next one you might not get, although you probably should. Who's it? I, st- I stump you guys. There you go. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is a black Barca lounger recliner from Friends. Here's a couple pictures so you can see. Here are the actors, Matt LeBlanc and Matthew Perry. It's the first episode when they got the recliners, and they're sitting on them. They're like, oh, it's so comfortable. And you have this picture of them laying back in them. Okay. Now, unfortunately... Um, there was an episode where their apartment was, was, was ransacked. Everything was taken. They were, all left was a white dog. So they had to replace it. So they replaced it with the brown Barker lounger that the actor Matt LeBlanc in the left there, who plays the character Joey, he called that recliner Rosita the Recliner. Okay. But eventually... Rachel, played by Jennifer Anson, broke his chair. So she went out and bought a black Lazy Boy E-Cliner 3000 with motor massage, heat wave, thermoelectric cooling unit, optional phone with caller ID, cup holders, and built-in speakers. There is such a chair, but it's not called the E-Cliner 3000. Now, today, when people think of recliners, though, what company do you think of, though? Lazy Boy, right? It's like when you think of fast food, the first thing you think of is McDonald's. But if there ever was a more aptly named product in the history of American manufacturing, I challenge anyone to come up with a, a better name than Lazy Boy. And I think the Lazy Boy company knew this because I discovered this advertisement, and I'm assuming this is from the 70s to maybe early, early 80s, it's their focus on the easy life, thus the name Lazy Boy. Do you recognize this guy? That is a young Joe Namath. I'm assuming, and I don't want to date anybody here, but that looks like it's roughly the 70s to maybe early 80s, right? With that shirt and everything. Look at that advertisement. Lie back and enjoy it. Now, you probably can't read this, so I, I wanted to tell you. Here's a part of that advertisement. This is how it reads. Lie back and enjoy it. I do. Why shouldn't you? These days, everyone wants recliner comfort. And with a lazy boy wall recliner like this, why not? I did not know he was a spokesperson for lazy boy. Did anyone know that? No. This appeal to ease and to comfort, I mean, folks, it worked. It worked big time. Uh, Founded in 1927, the Lazy Boy Company is the reigning king of recliners. You know how much it's worth now today? One and a half billion dollars. When you have the, the name that goes along with, you know, like McDonald's and fast food and recliners and, and Lazy Boy, you're going to be worth a lot of money. But the Lazy Boy recliner, it is the symbol of comfort and ease. I mean, that's a perfect name. You can go and you can sit back and you can just be lazy. In fact, in that episode of Friends, 
when those boys got those recliners. 14 hours passed. They didn't realize it. They'd been sitting in those recliners. Okay. So it is a symbol of comfort and ease. And just lie back and enjoy it. But I would contend this morning, it could also be the symbol for the wide gate and the easy way. A sort of lazy boy religion. Jesus tells us about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, remember, in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Jesus is calling for a decision. He quickly changes his, his tone, and he issues a warning in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, you should know by now that once you find the narrow gate, you must strive or agonize to enter into it, right? But it's not easy, and this is what we have to realize, folks, to even find the narrow gate. Because you have to be seeking for it with all of your heart, with with maximum effort. And Jesus said that those who find it are few, right? Well, why? Why isn't it easy to find the, the narrow gate? And why do you so few find it? Well, because obscuring the narrow gate are false prophets, and I like to think of them sitting in a lazy boy recliner, doing everything in their power to direct you to the wide gate in the easy way, which leads to destruction. You have to find it. And just like the lazy boy company, folks, these false prophets, they are successful. We'll get into that later. So Jesus, in effect, is saying this to us. As you strive to enter the narrow gate, beware of those who would deceptively mislead you. In order to be able to spot a false prophet, you need to be helpful to know kind of what a true prophet is. And that's where we're going to go this morning briefly, very, very briefly, answer this question, what is a true prophet? Now, a true prophet is marked by two traits. Everyone turn to Exodus chapter 3, second book in the Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus. But a true prophet is marked by two traits. And you're probably going to want to write these down if you're taking notes. It's calling and content. Calling and content. A true prophet has a divine calling to this ministry. And they receive divine content from God himself that they communicate to the people. This is why I pray every Sunday that these, hopefully these words that I'm speaking, they aren't my words. That they're the word of God. Okay? So let's take a look at these two characteristics in, in, in the first and probably the most important prophet in the Old Testament, Moses. Look at Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. This is the call of Moses. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Let's jump ahead to verse 9. 
Now behold, the Lord says, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, mind you, had Moses tried to be their deliverer beforehand? Yes, he did. Now he is actually, after 40 years in the wandering in the desert, now he's called by God. Okay? So this is the, the call of God, the call of Moses on call of God in Moses' life. So again, a prophet was called by God to accomplish God's mission. Now let's talk about the content of Moses. Go to Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 10. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf? No other book in the Old Testament speaks to the problem of false prophets more than Jeremiah. Everyone turn to Jeremiah chapter 14. I'll give you some time to find it, but it's kind of near the middle of the Bible. Go to Psalms and make it right. Jeremiah chapter 14. We'll start in verse 10. I was just, you know, you read your Bible and you read it regularly and, and you just kind of skip over sections and when you have to study something and you, your eyes are open to how much the Bible speaks about a certain topic. Well, there's a lot the Bible says about false prophets. Jeremiah 14, verse 10. Thus says the Lord to, his pe- to this people, and he's speaking of Israelites, even so they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. They haven't stayed in the straight and narrow path. They've veered to the right and to the left. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Because of their continual disobedience, God's patience had grown thin. And yes, folks, God is patient, but eventually he runs out of patience. He had enough. So God imposes the, on the people the terms of his covenant relationship spelled out in Deuteronomy. In short, the covenant stated that if you obey me, guess what? You're going to be blessed. If you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. And the curse, the curses came in the form of what? Sword, famine, and pestilence. There was nothing, look at this now, was there anything people could do to prevent this judgment from coming upon them? Even the prayer of the prophet, the prophets are viewed as, as sitting in the presence of God, worshiping, waiting to hear from him. So they're intimate with him. The prayer of the prophet would not prevent this judgment. And so Jeremiah cries out, look at verse 14 now. But our Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. 
I have neither, watch this now, sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Now, a false prophet is so deadly. Why, folks? It's not even that they prophesy lies, but why is it so deadly? They do it in God's name. The people needed a message of repentance. But instead, they were fed a misguided message of peace. So you see, the false prophets, they deceive. They're very subtle as they deceive the people by claiming to speak God's words, but instead are speaking lies from their corrupt minds. So there's no divine calling. You see that? They were never sent by God, and there's no divine content. God never spoke to them. And as you can deduce, the false prophets and their lies were an abomination to God, and sadly, they were very, very popular with the crowds of people. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. Go back a few uh, chapters. Verses 30 and 31. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. God says this, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. I mean, false prophets deceive the people with a nice message. It's the message that makes people feel good. And the people eat it up. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, the part of the church that's so entertaining and they, they preach on self-help and they preach these positive messages. That's why those churches are so large. You feel good about yourself, right? I mean, who wouldn't feel good? I mean, there's no need to change your life. You can just add Jesus to your already self-indulgent lifestyle because that's the message of the wide gate and easy way. But it's not a divine message coming from one who has a divine calling. And again, turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. God will speak through Jeremiah of the wickedness and immorality that false prophets bring in themselves and upon the people and ultimately the land. Jeremiah 23, 14. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. Now again, Here's the word horrible again. It's appalling in God's eyes. It's horrible. And that should give you an idea of how God views false prophets. He sees the, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants, inhabitants like Gomorrah. I mean, this wickedness is so great caused by the false prophets, it reminds God of Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously, we're rampant homosexuality and sexual morality was reigning. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah, God brings his judgment on the false prophets for the destruction they brought to bear 
upon the people and the land. Look at verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, those false prophets, what's happened? Pollution has gone forth into all the land. Everything rises and falls with the leaders, folks. God then calls his people to stop listening to these false prophets. Look at verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into fertility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. There it is again. Not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not <coughs> come upon you. That means another word for evil. Now notice the source, again, of the false prophet's message. What is it? It's the imagination from the human mind. It's not the mouth of God. And through their deceptive message of peace, what happens? Well, they keep the nation under the judgment of God. You see that? Now, of these prophets, God says in verse 21... Jeremiah 23, 21, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied, but they ran. There's the calling, their own calling. They prophesied, that's the content. So again, you see, there's no divine calling and no divine content. But perhaps the clearest picture of the utter wickedness of a false prophet or a false shepherd, which is basically the same thing, just listen to this. It's, it's Zechariah chapter 11, verse 16. You're probably going to write this verse down, but it's such a small book, it'd take you forever to find it. But it is a graphic picture, okay? I warn you, it's a graphic picture that unmasks the true nature of a false prophet. This is what Zechariah eleven sixteen says. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Now, folks, what kind of shepherd does not care for the lamb that is lost and about to perish or seek the young lamb that is strayed or does not do what is needed to heal the wounded sheep or refuses to feed his sheep? What kind of shepherd, instead of caring for the flock, devours the flesh of the sheep, their fat ones, tearing off even their hooves? Now, what does that mean? The idea of tearing their hooves means that the shepherd literally rips the hooves apart to get every little last morsel of meat on that structure. Now, what kind of shepherd is that? Well, it's one who masquerades as a true shepherd, but he really cares nothing for the sheep. What he cares about is enriching himself. Well, he rips and tears and shreds the flock. So the Old Testament is constantly warning us that there's going to be these false prophets and you not follow them. But in the New Testament, unfortunately, we have the same problem. Everyone turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's very near the end of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2.
starting in verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Now Peter's warning that in the church, okay, so that's this right now, this is today, in the church there will be false prophets and teachers. Now here are a couple of ma- or marks of false prophets. I see from this verse and other verses. Number one, and I put these up here for you, and you're going to want to write these down if this were to work. I know you guys had a problem with it earlier. It is not responding to me. Can you advance the next slide, David? Well, Frank came back and he ruined everything again, so you know how it goes. So, No, he, was there. he wasn't in Sunday school because he was trying to fix. We have a problem with the internet. Okay. Anyway, you can write these down, but, but you'll, you'll get the sermon anyways. But number one, they're not easily recognized. False prophets are not easily recognized. There we go. I got it now. They're not easily recognized. See that? They're very subtle. Now, look at this. It says, false prophets also arose among the people. So what happened? Over time, they gained the trust of the congregation and the elders. Think of it that way. They're put in positions of authority. As prophets and teachers. Well, how'd they do this? Well, remember Jesus' words? Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Yeah, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They enter in the church in sheep's clothing. Now, both, listen to this. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, a prophet was known, did you, I didn't know this, by what he wore. Elijah, for example, was a very rough, hairy, rugged, burlaps what he wore, it was an uncomfortable garment. This garment was a statement to society that he was kind of foregoing the creature comforts for the cause of God's calling to his people. Calling them to obedience. John the Baptist, what did he wear? The rough hair of a camel's coat, exactly. And that rough garment identified him as a prophet, as if he had come out of the wilderness communing with God. So therefore, when anybody wanted to play the part of a prophet, he would just buy a prophet's costume. That's what you would do. Now, Zechariah condemned this practice, and we just talked about him. He said this of the false prophets in Zechariah 13, 4, they wear a rough garment in order to deceive. In the case of the sheep's clothing, this is what the shepherds wore, because the mark of a shepherd was he wore a wool cloak that came from the hair of the sheep after they'd been sheared, right? As the false prophet wore the garment of the prophet, the false shepherd wears the garment of the shepherd. We find out that though he looks to be like a shepherd, he is a ravenous wolf, and he's very, very subtle. Now, there are three kinds of, of, of false prophets in the Bible. Number one is the heretic, right? This is the one person who twists scripture, and they teach false doctrine, uh, examples of some heretics would be uh, you know, the Jehovah's Witness, for example, that come to your, or the Mormons that come to your door. 
Number two would be the apostate. This is the person who denies the faith. Now, is it easy to spot a heretic for the most part and a apostate, someone who just walked away and denied the faith? Pretty easy, yeah? But the third kind of person who, or third kind of false prophet, see, this is the one you don't see. This is the one who comes with the cloak of the shepherd. This is the one that Jesus refers to in Matthew 7, 15. Because this is the one who talks about God and Jesus and the cross and the Bible and the church and the Holy Spirit. And he hangs around with people that are true Christians. He's behind a pulpit. Maybe he writes books. Maybe he's on television. And he, he just looks the part of a Christian. But the Apostle Paul says of these false prophets... Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as what? Servants of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. Of these people, Jude says this in Jude chapter 1, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace for God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they are subtle. They're not easily recognized. Number two, secretly, they begin to spread their destructive heresies. And that is the, the, the first false prophet. This is the heretic. Okay? But they begin secretly, right? They don't come out aggressively. Number three, once the secret is out, though, they openly deny their master. These false prophets and teachers, they see they know enough of the truth of God. And they've probably even experienced some of the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit, but they commit the unpardonable sin of apostasy. They abandon the faith. They deny it all. Now, there are others that won't openly deny the master, but they will deny the truth secretly. But those are three points. Okay, let's look at the fourth point. For false prophets and teachers, their destruction will be quick and certain. And the Bible goes to great lengths to talk about this. Peter states, beginning in verses 4 through 8 of 2 Peter, 2, that if, 2 Peter chapter 2, that if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, talking about when they came down and mated with women. And God did not spare the world of Noah, but he drowned that world. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then what makes you think God is going to spare these false prophets? They're abomination to him. It's a horrible thing, appalling to God. Verse 9 then of 2 Peter chapter 2 ensures that God will keep them. He has a, a means that he's reserved a place for them. It's like a, a hotel reservation. This place is reserved for you, for your punishment on the day of judgment. Verse 12 says, they will utterly perish in their own corruption. Verse 14 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. Their cursed children devoted to destruction. Verse 17, the mist of darkness is reserved forever for them. I mean, on and on and on, we could go on. False prophets will face a quick and certain judgment. Now, if God takes them that seriously, we should too. Number five, we'll spend some time here though. False prophets are very, very, very successful. They are very successful. 
the scriptures say over and over again, they will deceive many. Because there's that word again, many, 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 many. Our Lord says many will choose the wide gate because it's popular. It's the way of ease and comfort. It's that lazy boy way. No sacrifice, no suffering, no surrender, and above all, no guilt. Just a few manageable rules to follow in this man-made religious system called the easy way. It's Matthew seven thirteen, And it's taught by false prophets and teachers. In the last days, Jesus warns that many false prophets will arise and deceive many. Just listen to these. Matthew 24, verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. I mean, there it is. Many. Many. They're successful. Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Matthew 24, verses 24 and 25. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. We know in advance. Many, many will, false prophets and teachers will arise. And many, many will follow them. Peter says that they will follow the self-indulgent ways of the false prophet. He says many will follow their sensuality. John, the Apostle John says, we must test the spirits. Why do we have to test the spirits? Because of the many false prophets in the world. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And folks, when it finally comes to an end, and this is really sad, the day of judgment, we find that there are indeed many, many people. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. That's Matthew 7, 22. Again, the many, and notice these people, by the way, they're religious people. They're doing what? They're in the church, trying to apply the power of the Holy Spirit. But many of these people, who entered by the wide gate on the day of judgment now come to the end of the easy way. They expect heaven only to find out they were on the wrong road. And then they hear these fateful words and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Folks, why were they on the wrong road? Because the false prophets we're pointing them to the wide gate through a false gospel that deceives again by promising heaven but only delivers hell. Let me put this into perspective for you from some numbers. This is the world's largest religion. It is Christianity. Did you know that? 2.38 billion followers according to current statistics. That is 31% of the world's population. Now, folks, everyone who claims to be a Christian obviously is not going to heaven. They're not always a believer. Now, included in this 2.38 billion followers of Christianity, when you look at this number, you have Roman Catholics, the Mormon Church, and the Church of Christ. So, the Catholic Church has this many followers. 1.2 billion it proclaims it's half of the 2.38. It proclaims a religion of human achievement. It teaches through its false prophets and teachers. And let's maybe just start calling them that. 
they're not priests. By definition, the definition that matters, which is God's definition, they're false prophets and false teachers. They teach that humanity enters heaven by faith in Jesus and through works, right? This is heresy for the Bible clearly teaches that man is justified by faith alone in Jesus, not by works. Now, folks, the world's current population is seven and a half billion. So 16% of the world's population is Catholic. That equals 1.2 billion people that entered the wide gate and are on the wrong road, which leads to destruction. The Mormon church, at the end of 2020, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reported a membership of just under 17 million. Now, they also teach a religion of human achievement to gain eternal life. The Church of Christ, what's the Church of Christ? Well, they claim two million followers. They teach a religion of human achievement to gain eternal life. In order to be saved, you must be what? Baptized. Justification by faith and works. Those are all heresies. These, and there are more churches, folks. There are more churches that I could go into. But that 2.38 billion, it's already cut in half by the Catholic number. It's going to go down more and more and more. What about the 54% of people that claim to be Christians, but they're the notional, notional Christians? They have no biblical worldview. They're not believers. So, yeah. False prophets are successful. How about Islam? Look at this. There are 1.9 billion followers. It's the second largest world religion. That's 25% of the world's population. They teach a, a religion of divine achievement or of human achievement. It's human. How about Hinduism? 900 million followers. Same thing. They teach a religion of human achievement to gain eternal life. How about Buddhism? 470 million followers worldwide. Again, a religion of human achievement they teach. Even Judaism, there's 17.4 million. It's the 10th largest religion in the world. It teaches a religion of human achievement to gain eternal life. So I ask this question to you. Are false prophets successful in obscuring the entrance to the narrow gate? Yes, they are. And they're everywhere. Number six, they blaspheme the way of truth. Let me put this differently for you. They obscure the way of the narrow gate through their lies. That's what they're doing. They are greedy. <laughs> I was shocked to see this repeated over and over again in description of false prophets. They seek to enrich themselves with their false words. Second Peter 2, 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're exploiting you. They're, they're teaching you false doctrine for what purpose? Greed. They want to make money. Jude says this. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay... They have rushed headlong into the heir of Balaam, who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Balaam was a false prophet. So for pay, for money, they're false prophets. False prophets and teachers are like the Pharisees, Jesus said. They're lovers of money. Let me give you a recent example of an article I discovered on September 24th, just a few days ago. It's from a, the Christian Post. It's an article entitled, Kenneth Copeland asks for money for private jet to avoid vaccine mandates, which he calls the mark of the beast. Do you guys see this? 
televangelist Kenneth Copeland has asked supporters for money to purchase a private jet so he can avoid vaccine mandates, something he believes is the mark of the beast. As described in the book of Revelation, I quote, you get into this situation, we're not going to let you fly unless you're vaccinated. Well, to me, that's the mark of the beast. Copeland, who with his wife Gloria, now catch this, often promotes the prosperity gospel, reportedly already owns three jets in a private airport. Why does he need another one? He's a false prophet motivated by greed. And finally, number eight, they are deadly, folks. They are deadly. The scriptures call them inwardly, inside. They're like ravenous wolves. The number one enemy of the sheep in Palestine was the wolf roaming the hills, waiting for the right moment to snatch the, the, the straggling sheep and rip it to shreds. So don't think that Kenneth Copeland and the other false prophets of our time that you see oftentimes on television... They're good, well-meaning, misguided folks. They are dangerous. They're devouring wolves. They endeavor, they're, they're really endeavoring to shove people onto the broad road to hell. Peter calls them brute beasts, filth spots, scabs, beguilers of unstable souls who are lured through the lust of the flesh. Jude calls them again brute beasts, spots or scabs or on your love feasts. They're flatterers who flatter people to gain a personal advantage. They are dangerous, and folks, they are deadly, and they are everywhere. I just actually touched on this subject because we're already out of time. But there you have it, folks. We've been warned. And next week, we're going to look into how we identify a false prophet. Because there's a warning. There need to be warning signs. We need to know what they are. Amen? Well, let's pray. Because I want you to just, if you can, I, I've never studied false prophets. Just read some of the passages in the Bible about false prophets. It's amazing how prevalent they are. And because God considers them such an abomination and a horror and a filth, and he's so serious about it, we need to know about them and be as serious as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. I pray that we've been educated, that we've heard your words. I hope and pray that the word of God was preached faithfully today and that you spoke to people's hearts and that we would beware of the false prophets that litter the religious landscape of our time. I thank you, Father, for giving us your words, for giving us signs and, 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 and markers that we can see in the scriptures to identify them, and for giving us your Holy Spirit, who will never guide us into lies, but always guide us into the truth. May we learn even more to depend upon him day by day, moment by moment. And all God's people said, Amen. We'll just close right now. No closing song. Have a great Sunday. Enjoy your first day of the week. God bless you.